You're listening to the Water in Real Life podcast, the podcast for people who want to become better leaders by becoming better communicators. Why? Because those who tell the stories rule the world. We're your hosts, the H2 duo, Stephanie Corso and Ariane Shipley. So without further ado, let's get to the show. We are so excited to be here today. We've got some special guests that are going to just help clear up entirely the world of state revolving funds. No more questions ever needed. They're going to answer every single thing that you need to know. And I'm so pumped to have that. No pressure, T, Katie. (laughs) Thanks for being here with us. So T, T Thomas is with Qualified Venture. She brings 15 years of water financing and environmental equity experience to quantified ventures. Most recently, she served as the wider finance director for the state of Vermont. She's a strong believer in the potential power of public financing to be the catalytic super investor in this fast emerging field of nature-based solutions while simultaneously and aggressively advancing equity and resilience agendas across the country. She is joined by Katie Hansen, who is the senior advisor for water at Epic which is the Environmental Policy and Innovation Center. Yeah, first take, y'all. She conducts research, (laughs) develops policies, and builds coalitions to eliminate disparities in funding water infrastructure. Thanks so much for being here with us, y'all. This is, this is, I'm excited about today's conversation. Likewise. I'm here. When you've been in the water world for as long as we have, we're so from, I mean, in theory, we're so familiar with SRF funding. And then just in just a brief conversation that we had, I was made entirely aware of my ignorance on. (laughs) So I'm really excited for y'all to clear up some of um, the questions that we've had. So I know that there's others out there that have them as well. Um, And a lot of exciting things happening in that world currently. So Ariane, I'm going to kick you off today. Um, so first things first, um, we have to ask this question to everyone because it is, you know, everyone's favorite question. It is. I need to know from both of you, I'll let both of you get a chance to answer. Did you choose water or did water choose you? Oh, good. Well, I'll jump in and say water chose me. I was lucky enough to grow up in Montana and I spent my summers swimming in the lakes and the winters skiing in the mountains. And so water was just a huge part of my childhood. Uh, And then as an adult, when I started grappling with uh, more of the pressing challenges that I think we're facing as a society, especially climate change and income inequality and racism, it was clear to me that disparities in water services really sit at the intersection of those challenges. And so I felt called to really dive into the, to that and, and um, start thinking about how do we solve these, the, that problem as part of a broader set of challenges. Nice. And T? I think maybe a little bit of both. I was uh, I was studying to be a nurse, and I was required to take a biology course. And uh, I quit my nursing school, changed what? my major to environmental health, and um, and got my master's in public health. And it, it's what Katie says. It 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 fits in everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and it's the uniter that we have. So uh, I guess. It, it found me, I found it, but uh, I'm really glad that it did because I feel really lucky to be having these conversations right now 
this time, this place. I don't know. Yeah. So, well, all that's, that's I really neat. love those stories where water stole somebody from something. Yeah. Because, you know, we have so much water workforce challenges. I always love the stories where I'm like, ha, gotcha. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Um, so as with everything in water, it's complicated, but can you give us this 40,000 foot view of, let's say like those top three issues around the state revolving fund? The most mind blowing one for us was this fraction of communities that are actually receiving the funding. So to understand the top three issues, I think just a bit of context is helpful. So mm-hmm. state revolving funds are a federal program. Congress appropriates the money, the EPA sends that money down to states, and then states have a pool of capital or pool of funds to loan out and then occasionally to provide grants to borrowers, mainly utilities. And then the utilities will invest in their infrastructure and construct projects and then repay the loans. Then the money circles back into the fund, revolves, right? And and states can, can loan it out again. And so the context for this conversation is to understand how much discretion the states have in how these funds are allocated. Mm -hmm. And in that, the the top three issues that emerge are who's benefiting from these funds. So as you referenced in the question, how many communities have received state revolving funds in in the past 10 years? We looked on the drinking water side and found that 7% of utilities have, and that's just a very small fraction of the 54,000 drinking water utilities in the U.S. that are eligible for these funds. The second big issue that we looked at is is which types of communities are benefiting from these funds. So amongst that 7%, the money tends to go to larger places and places that have a higher proportion of residents who identify as white. And from an equity and justice standpoint, we'd really like to see this money go down to places that have lower incomes, higher poverty rates, and more people of color to address historical legacies of racism. Um, And then then I say the third issue is the type of projects that that states are financing. So Mm -hmm. almost all of the money, 97% on the the clean water side is going to gray infrastructure. And pipes and, and pumps and plants are really important for treating our wastewater. But when we think about resilience to climate change, for example, or addressing flooding, stormwater overflows. We want to think about other types of infrastructure, green infrastructure, natural infrastructure that states could choose to invest more in. Okay. So the vast majority are kind of going into existing solutions versus forward thinking about like more innovative solution approaches. Okay. Gotcha. Um, Is there anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask more on that too. Like I I have so many more questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll just, I'll just kind of, you know, Katie is the brilliant data person. She knows all of these numbers in and out. Um, And I think, you know, the, the reason that these, these programs have just been um, maybe not as innovative as they could have been, or not as forward thinking, it's like they've been a little bit of a black box. And so I think a lot of the work that Katie and I are trying to do, and, and many, many others are like we view this money as like the potential to like it's to me it's almost like the answer to our resiliency problems especially around water it is the answer for reparations around environmental justice with water so it's like the answer so it's like it's the stuff that keeps you up at night to be like it's no longer good enough 
to just be like, well, it's a black box and it's really hard to access. And I guess somebody in middle management at the state, which was my role, by the way, like I've yeah. been there, it's hard. Yeah. Um, like, I guess that person decided that it's going to be this way and, and so be it. So I think the who's getting the money, where mm-hmm. does it go? And then how do we move into like this century where everything else is evolving with technology and we're still doing the same stuff that we did in like, I don't know, 1905 or something. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I love the theme already because mm-hmm. you know, we're really passionate about making it that water can be the catalyst for community transformation. And that really sounds along the same mm-hmm. thread. And we interviewed Manny Teodoro in season five, and he's done a lot of extensive research around affordability. And in the opening pages of the SRF like analysis report that Epic put out there, it re- reminded me of the conversation that we had with him. And in that document, it said access to safe, reliable, affordable drinking water in the United States is often inequitable along economic and racial lines. And so one of the challenges that Manny pointed out to us was the lack of data. In his opinion, he said that there wasn't enough specific data that creates a good map kind of related to inequities and where they're happening. So thoughts on that? And what are some ways that we can build support for more of that kind of research to see what's really happening? Right. Yeah. Manny's done a lot of the leading and some of the only work on this, as you point out. And so I would say that there are three things we can do here. We need to collect more data. We need to make the data that it is easier to find and search and use, mm-hmm. and then employ that data for research. So I can just say a couple more about each of those. Most of the data that we have on water services right now is on water quality violations. And what we need more data on is what is the physical condition of the infrastructure from inventories and asset management plans, which most utilities don't have. What is the state of the pipes? Where are they? What condition are they in? What are they made of? Right. And same for for pumps, treatment plants and other infrastructures. Now we need a lot of data on on finances. So does the utility have a high amount of debt? What is their revenue? What are their operating ratios? What are their water rates that they're collecting? And luckily there is a lot more effort to collect these data. So the environmental finance sensors have done a lot of work. Manny's training students on a regular basis to try to to dig into this. Uh, and, And then I'd say, so we have to collect these data. We make it easier to find and search something like the Internet of Water is investing in, in kind of infrastructure based on that and then doing the research. And so here I would point to to the wide span of researchers. I love the citizen science work that we, the people of Detroit, is supporting and other organizations. So there's lots of ways for individuals to get involved in this. And then. And then luckily through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and others, there's a call for an investment in more water data at at a kind of multi-million dollar scale. Yeah. Uh, Something that I thought about as you were talking about making that data and information more easily find searchable, accessible, usable, Um, You know, there's a lot of different universities out there that are getting involved in water policy and kind of creating these dashboards and hubs to to do that. And um, my only call to action to all of those folks is from a communication standpoint is just to be really mindful of who your audience is. 
So the look, feel, usability that a trained scientist, researcher, analyst is going to is going to work well is going to be different than mm-hmm. your influences, your influencers, and your elected officials and your policymakers um, who have this laundry list of different topics and issues that mean something to them. And I think one thing that we forget. And, and I'm equally as guilty of this is, you know, a lot of people in the sector, most people in water are very passionate about it. And so we forget that not everybody shares that degree of passion on the level that we have it. And so just making sure that the information that we're giving to them is super easy to use, that we communicate clearly to those folks like elected officials and such, why this should matter to them, talking points key things specific to their constituencies so that you don't have to make them think about why they need to get involved or support you. It's kind of right there for them. Um, and cause I, I hate to see all of the time and effort and mind power and collaboration that it takes to get those kinds of dashboards and hubs created and then for them not to be utilized to, right. to their best, to their best usage. So just Absolutely. think about all those things. Right. <laughs> Um, and I have to say that Epic has been really great about that, at looking at, at that from the communication standpoint and saying, we've got all of these really cool things. How do we get out there and make sure that it's getting in front of the right people and spreading the word? Um, so as communication-minded people, <laughs> uh, of course, that's the lens we see most topics through. And immediately I wondered if the people in the communities that are getting left out or left behind is one of the problems that they don't have people who can advocate for them. Um, Our sector speaks a specific language that can be complicated and confusing for people who don't know, quote unquote, the family language, all of our acronyms, all of our code words, whatever you want to talk, whatever you want, even knowing all of the different departments in in a city and how they're connected to the utility or not, it's just, it's crazy. We've got our own kind of we need a mind map di- diagram for every conversation we have with people. But is that part of the issue? And do you see that changing now, especially with the rise of social justice issues across all of the social sectors right now? Yeah, Katie, do you want me to take that? Yeah, okay. Um, so I, I absolutely think this is part of the problem, and it's especially part of the problem for the SRFs. Um, these are old programs. They've been around for like 30 years. And so they're deeply full of acronyms. And even Katie and I read these, the plans of how states are going to spend their money. Like we read this stuff for fun. Like it's, it's (laughs) ridiculous. It's embarrassing to confess. I will confess that here. Like we read these safe space. It's fine. Yeah. It's a safe space. Like nobody else is going to hear this. No, no, no. no. Okay. So we, we do this for fun. And even I, like, I'll be like, wait, what is this act? It's so technically worded. And this is the money to change the whole game. And it's written like something in Klingon. Like I, it's just so hard to like get through. Um, I think a lot of the work that's happening around uh, communications and data, um, it's like this, it's like this stirring and it's like, it's, it's tangible. You can feel it. Um, where, where you just feel like this collective, like not good enough anymore. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's, it's pretty important, but I just think that that language is, is such a key piece of this because 
you know, you've got some states where there are 28 steps in order to apply, and each step is a packet of um, complex information. Like, I've done this for like 15 years. I couldn't apply for that program. Like, I would, yeah, so it's it's tough, but it's changing, I hope. Yeah, and then you throw in that these smaller towns, you know, they had they may not have that admin support For sure. like that. And you know, I just I did send a link to the SRF fund um application to our one of our local mayors here and they wrote back and they're like what the hell am I doing? Where do I <laughs> like what does this mean? Where do I start? I don't get this. I'm over it. I opened it and I shut it down. Like it was so complicated. And then trying to go back and like find that, you know, just Googling it, it was like impossible, you know? Yeah. So it's it's so it's, it sucks that it's all right there. It's just like so hard to find or do or manage or whatever. So I, this is a really important conversation to, to get out there and have and make sure people understand, like it's worth the digging. Yeah. And I would say, first of all, there's some states that are doing an amazing work. Probably. There's a lot of work on the outreach. There were administrators like T, right, who are just out there proactively recruiting utilities, translating materials, doing everything they can to just make it simpler. And when T and I started having these conversations, I, I, I started with SRFs five years ago. I read everything that I could find that had ever been written. It was by about six or seven people. Now we participate in, in webinars and forums where there'll be regularly 50 people showing up to talk about mm-hmm. state revolving funds. Yeah. And the messaging is changing because with the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, a lot of the money will be provided as principal forgiveness, one of the wonky terms, but as a grant essentially to communities. And so we really have time to do more messaging around this is the program. We need to make it easier to apply. We can provide technical assistance, but, and also do the outreach. And I just say coupling with the kind of proactive state side is from residents and frontline communities, there's also work happening around centering their voices. And we want to change the guardrails on how this money goes out the door and, and ensuring that we think about whose voice is in the room and, and who do we have in mind in doing that is a, just a focus throughout the sector now, right? With the state agencies, environmental justice advocates, philanthropists, organizations like ours. Um, and so that's really encouraging to see that that there is a shift in culture and communication. Yeah. So you set me up perfectly for that next question, but I would be remiss if I if I didn't ask this follow up. But for those folks who do need help and for those communities who do need someone to advocate for them, who are some people, organizations, nonprofits, whatever, that you want to give a nod to or shout out to that can either be looked to as a great example of how to do this or that people listening can reach out to as a resource? So many, uh, (laughs) but let me break it down into a couple different groups. So for residents and communities, there are caucuses and coalitions that are providing great work on navigating this space. So I would definitely shout out the Water Equity and Climate Resilience Caucus, which is co-convened by PolicyLink and the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, as well as organizations like the Anthropocene Alliance. So coalitions of residents and community-based groups. 
at a at a more state policy reform level, so folks that are thinking about educational materials, advocacy campaigns, we're running, uh, co-convening a forum for SRF advocates with the Alliance for the Great Lakes River Network and Policy Link, and happy to just invite all to join that as and organizations like Water Now have done tons of profiling and, and good work on trust building and, and thinking about how these programs can um, work better. And then for sure, the TA providers. So the technical assistance providers like RCAP's been in this game for a long time and, and lots of others are entering. Communities Unlimited does great work on this. The um, And Epic is working with partners on setting up what we're calling a funding navigator to help anyone who's interested, utilities, individuals, right, get more information about this and, and navigate the system of applying for these funds. So we're also happy to um, be a resource. Yeah, I love that. And for anybody um, that was scrambling to remember all of that, we're going to post all of that information with links and then some on the show notes. So be sure to check that out on our website. And you can slow down the speed to like, and you can't. Yeah. <laughs> so love the two. We're super fans of RCAP communities unlimited as well. We've gotten to, to work with, uh, with those folks and have heard so many great things about all the other organizations that you listed off. But as I was reading that analysis report that y'all did on SRF funding, that as valuable a resource as technical assistance is, I thought that just the conversation around SRFs in general is just creating even more context around the diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion conversation that's happening inside the water industry. Definitely think there's value in having utilities more closely mirror the communities that they serve in order to make sure that there is protections for those that typically are underserved or get left behind. Um, I know a lot of the work that you're doing is focused on policy and assistance, but have you even seen how these conversations are stirring that internal conversation too within utilities and about just one more thing to talk about the value of DEI in our sector? Yeah, um, I, I, I have actually, and Yay. it's, it's pretty inspiring actually. Um, you know, I think historically who makes the decisions, right? Like where does money go? And it's, and it's rarely someone that looks like the people that they are necessarily serving. So, um, you know, I have, I have, I have heard some really good um, talks given um, by Philadelphia Waterworks, um, Buffalo Sewer Authority, um, Phoenix is doing a bunch of work um, to, to kind of change this um, lens around DEI and who's calling the shots and, and how do we bring in the community into these conversations. And it's, it's like also answering our other biggest problem, which is we don't have enough people in water. We don't have enough water operators. We don't have enough 19-year-olds um, being like, I want to be a public works director when I grow up. Yeah. Um, and so really to answer both of those um, issues, um, you know, Buffalo and, and Philadelphia have something called Power Core, yes. where, um, where they work hard to get people you know, um, OJ from Buffalo will say, I don't care if you have a GED or a PhD, we can find you a spot, we'll train you, they pay for 
college, they get you placed in a career, they get you benefits. If you need it, they'll give you housing assistance oh, as nice. you walk through their program. Like I was, I have a son who's like 20 and I'm like texting him like now. Get um, <laughs> and, and, you know, like, like OJ from Buffalo, like he'll say, my best way to find the next workforce that represents the community is like, I, I talk to mamas, I talk to grandmas mm-hmm. and they all have someone that they think could come and work with us. So it's really inspiring to not just see that from a kind of like a sleepy, like uh, workforce development is a problem. Like we've been hearing that for yeah. so many years, but like pairing that with, but also a big problem is changing what that workforce is and who it represents. So um, it's pretty inspiring, but yeah, I, I, wow. I do think that conversation is changing. Oh, that's great. And those mamas and grandmas, they'll, they'll light the fire under those kids <laughs> and, and make mm-hmm. them fill out the application. <laughs> yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's genius. I love and it. I love that you said your, your kid is 20 and you were telling, I was like, Arianne's are like five and seven and she's Not, already yeah. telling them they're going to oh, be yeah. operators. I was like, I don't care <laughs> sure. what your dream is. You can go be a vet later in life. Um, you're going to be a water operator when you turn 18, you're going to go ahead. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So it, it kind of sounds like the SRF funding can't really be used for peripheral needs like communication or maybe that admin support. Um, a, is that the case or my stereotyping this, um, or, and B like, what are some ways you're seeing communities be able to fund those needs that are just as important as the infrastructure in the ground? Um, well, I'll give you the nerdy, like, mm, eligibility. Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> so I'll give you that answer first. Um, so SRFs can fund sort of project management and oversight that sometimes can bleed into that comms world. Um, so sometimes, you know, in communities that have to have a bond vote referendum, like their consulting engineer will help them with like, how snappy that bond language is, which is like <laughs> usually pretty snoozeworthy all by itself. Um, but like all of some of those kind of costs are are um, eligible. But then there's like a line between this project for this pipe on Fifth and Maple, and uh, and some nebulous line where it's just like helping a, a small community just message and build their relationship and connect with their community and do the things that have to happen so people trust that their water is safe to drink and they understand when there are investments that there's like a purpose for it. So I think uh, until let's say a year ago when Katie and I are like the only people in the world having these conversations and reading these SRF documents, uh, like I think in the past, they're just like it just really just didn't happen, or it rarely would happen in an under-resourced community, um, which means like mistrust, uh, it, it, like all kinds of issues. Um, people buy bottled water, which is like the worst thing on the or move out. Uh, I've had someone yeah. tell me yesterday they moved out of this t- this tiny town that already is you know small suffering, yeah, suffering. Oh, yeah they moved out because of their water bill. And I was like, Whoa, like that, that ain't good. Y'all we got to fix. Yeah. Yeah. And then like the more people leave the, like it pipes don't get cheaper. So it's like, it's like a little bit of a domino effect. 
Uh, but I think until recently, it's it's really been largely ignored. Um, and, and I know that Katie and Epic, uh, I'll, I'll kind of like pause there and just be like gloom and doom. And I think Katie's like, <laughs> don't worry, we've got a solution for that. Um, so, uh, you know, I know Epic and Katie's team have been really working on bringing this to the forefront and like not hiding that it's a thing that's almost maybe it's even more important than actually what happens with water is how people perceive uh, that, it, that it happens. So thank you for saying hey, louder for those in the Thank box. you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> we just had a really amazing conversation with Trina McGuire Collier, who's with HDR. She does a lot of strategic communication work for them. And she said, uh, what that kind of the thing to remember and think about when you're working with communities and trying to get that trust that you can move forward is that the mentality is whatever you don't do with us, you do to us. Mm-hmm. And your relationship is just so much more um, fruitful when people feel like you're doing something with them versus to them. And that sure. buy-in is just so incredibly important to the success of the project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would jump in here to say, that there was a sense that in the past planning and then time for public comment and then planning and then right short intervention and really moving towards this much more participatory helix model of just continual iteration, getting information out there, collecting feedback, working together on this. And, and that, so rather than seeing technical assistance as, as purely an engineering design and development project, it is that and community engagement always hand in hand. We have to thread these together mm-hmm. and that there are good comms and outreach practices that we can lean into here, right? So, so as you said earlier in the pod, Stephanie, the translation of technical documents into something that is digestible, hugely important, but then also meeting communities where there are, how many times do you hear, if we go to the meetings where the community's already gathering, we provide transport and childcare support that we think through what does it take to participate in this after a long day of work where you have lots of other things on your mind and, and just really building on those relationships and, and making it easier for that information to go back and forth is is just not an additional thing. It's woven into what needs to happen on technical assistance. Yes. Love that. And for anyone thinking, well, how much time and how much money is it going to take me to do it that way versus just doing it to get it done? Uh, Way longer if you piss people off and you, I mean, you can talk to our friend, Tom Hickman, episode 18 and 19 and hear his whole story going to ninth district court for not doing it that way. And the millions of dollars that had to get spent on legal things, because I mean, what people get mad about too, is not what you think they might get mad at. Everything may be running smoothly in your project, but if you don't think about it from the perspective of the community, they mm-hmm. may be pissed it's about something that you hadn't even thought of. And if you're not doing that ongoing community outreach and engagement, like you said, Katie, you're not going to know until it's too late. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. T, did you want to add anything or? Uh, no, I'm just, I'm like, I, Katie and I talk all the time and I'm always just like, oh, I love everything she says. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I <laughs> And, um, you know, I think, I think we're all the choir on this and I think what is so inspiring is again, like I'm like the, like, I feel like I've been in these conversations for so many years in the municipal finance space. And it's like, it's a different game. Like it's a different, um, 
So uh, Epic is working on a, a lead service line challenge, which is a little bit of an aside, but it's like this whole expert team to sort of help with, um, you know, fast forward lead service line removal. And they, they brought in this like communications expert as a resource for these small under, under-resourced communities. Yeah. And I was like, huh, like I've never seen any municipal project have like a person. So it's just, yeah. it's really cool. That's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So I'm going to keep it in the comms world. Um, y'all are here with us. And, you know, one reason I'm sure is to spread the word about your analysis and your policy recommendations. Um, how have y'all tried to spread the word yourselves? Who's your target audience? What's your biggest call to action for the people listening here? How can we help you yeah. move this narrative forward? Yes. We've tried to spread the word through the reports, press releases, webinars, trying to find the conversations where people are engaged in state revolving funds and, and then um, understanding a part to play. Epic does these sort of deep wonky analyses and then wants to translate it into practical action. So we're a really pragmatic bunch and our focused, our target audience is always the decision makers. Mm-hmm. Who's deciding to apply? We want to reach them. Who's deciding how the money goes out the door? We want to reach them, right? Who's advocating to change that? We want to reach those folks. And so our materials and outreach efforts change depending on those target audiences as they as they should be. Um, but I think that that's an important part. And and I would just say we ha- our call to action is that this is an immensely successful program. It's extremely popular across the political aisle. It's funded nearly $200 billion worth of projects, over 16,000 projects. And the funds are revolving back and, and should continue to finance infrastructure in perpetuity, which is amazing because we continually need to maintain infrastructure. So it's a great program. And we have such an opportunity, not just in this moment with an influx of funds, but also picking up on the better practices that are emerging from from more robust engagement around diversity, equity, and inclusion to really tip the scales in terms of how this money is going out the door. And and we're just making the most of the moment, right? It's it's here, we're digging in, and we're doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say throughout all this, it sounds like we're at this tipping point and yeah. it really does. And we really are at a place where we have the opportunity to move forward in a really meaningful direction. Definitely. Tini, add on to that call to action. Yes. And <laughs> uh, y- yes. And yeah. I think, I think the important piece is, um, you know, on the natural and green infrastructure um, realm, which is my obsession and technology, which makes communities more able to do what they do longer um, and and more sustainably. I think um, where, when I feel like I'm talking infrastructure and I would tell this like to our leagues of cities and towns, like when I feel like we're talking natural infrastructure, um, I also feel like that's also a a diversity, equity, inclusion um, conversation. Like they're not different conversations. The communities that don't have good infrastructure, they don't have access to green space and all those good things, they're all the same communities. Like sometimes I've called Katie to just be like, like the crazy person on the side of the corner with like a sandwich board, like the end is near. <laughs> like I've been like, did you know they're all the same communities? Like, um, so I, uh, like, I, I think my obsession is like, how does that nexus 
work and like bringing, you know, bringing the, the conservation groups this way and the advocacy groups and the communities and bringing the SRF the other way and like, like doing the things and doing the work. So um, I think I'll just like echo Katie in that uh, this is the time, like this is the, this is the moment to like not do business as usual, but to shave our heads and pierce our eyebrows and do some really cool stuff with all of this money. So, and for those very small, uh, towns that just freaked out about shaved heads and piercing, um, (laughs) you know, say, saying yes, saying yes is a big change for them. I know, you know, our small communities around here are, I have a couple advocates that are just dying to get their, you know, get their hands in this kind of world. Um, but then they were like, well, my council is going to say no because they've always said no because they're scared. They don't know how to, this is going to be in the long term. They don't know how it's going to be managed. So I want to definitely leave on like a positive, like rah, rah, um, cheerleading moment for those type of towns that are just like, I want it, but I'm the only one that wants it. Like, what do we say to these people? Like, can you leave some final words for them um, to really kind of, I know it's like a rogue question, but some final words that can really like get them like, just click that link and start working, you know, <laughs> click the link. <laughs> <laughs> call Katie, call T. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think what I would say is, um, it, it, it's, it's, you have to get in the, like, you have to get on someone's radar, right? Like to know that there are resources out there, to know that there are needs out there, someone at least has to raise their hand. So that like first raising your hand is less overwhelming than, whoa, we have to know our whole system inside and out. And I have to convince a council and where will the money come from? Like that is really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But just raising your hand and being like, here's what, here's like a beginning, like feasibility, like planning, study. Um, So I think it's important to like, you know, eat the elephant sort of like one bite at a time here. Mm -hmm. So I think my message to those small communities would be um, raise your hand, throw your, throw your community's hat in the ring. And if, if you're on the radar, that's where resources come from. And, and we can't build policy and resources around super secret squirrel projects. Like we kind of know that you exist. And so I think, I think there's like really power in that like first step, which is less scary than the whole step. Yes. Yeah. Katie, did you want to add something that? That identification, having people raise their hand as Tia is saying is, is a way to then start a process and then we can spread things out bit over space and time. So it's not that you raise your hand and then the next step is committing to submitting an application with a full engineering design and a financial (laughs) audit and an environmental review, right? It's the next step is to have a conversation about what are the types of problems that we're dealing? What are the types of solutions? What are the types of eligibilities? What does the community say? And so then then there are are resources and, and ways to keep taking the next step after that. So exactly right. Raise your hand, take a first step. And, and then people will want to build a pipeline of projects. And, and there are just hundreds of folks that are, that are really thinking hard and trying to do work on, on 
recruiting folks to apply, take advantage of this opportunity, and we're going to get there together. Right? Yeah, I love that. Awesome. Like, Thank you. You're not alone. Uh, if you are a community struggling, if you know some a community that's struggling, share this podcast. Find Katie and T. Yep. We'll have all of their contact information up on the show notes, as well as all of those resources that that Katie had mentioned. And even if you don't even know how to start from there, I don't care if you message us on Twitter or wherever you are in the socials, like just raise your hand and we'll help connect you to whoever you need to be connected to. But yeah, raise that hand and take that first step. Don't be overwhelmed. So, um, that is amazing, but we can't let you go without doing a, a little lightning round with us. Um, and so where these questions come, huh? Well, you're going to kick it off, but I'm going to give a little context that I stole this from Brene Brown. Uh, <laughs> uh, Cause she does a kind of lightning round too, but these are all based on our core values. Uh, there's a lot of fill in the blanks. So don't overthink it. First answer that comes to your mind, Ariane's going to kick us off. Okay. And then, and then I'm going to go KDT, KDT, just cause that's the way you're in my, um, my view. So y'all just answer back to back is fine. So name a moment that you've felt most authentically you. When I'm outside eating good food with my friends and family. hundred hmm. percent watching my husband and my dogs play together. Like it's Aww. just, it's everything. Yeah. Oh, okay. For sure. Okay, so this one can be either someone you met in real life or someone you even met virtually, but um, who is someone you were so glad you met? Uh, it could be 2021 because since we're just in February, but this year. T. Thomas. Oh. Katie Hansen. <laughs> um, so I met um, Katie's um, boss, Tim, and he was about five minutes in and he said, I think there's someone that you need to meet. And I think we, um, we formed a union in just like five minutes and she's just like everything. She's everything in terms of like support brains. Like, as I look at horror about like what's not happening and then like awe of what could happen. Um, she's, she's so great. Oh, you found your duo. I love, love it. it. <laughs> From one duo to the other. Yeah. Oh. Um, boldness looks like fill in the blank. Katie. Responsibility, taking risks, making mistakes, and learning lessons. It's like you had that written down. That's perfect. Mm. (laughs) I think for me, boldness is, uh, you know, a lot of what I'm doing now is looking at intersectionality. Like, what are the health effects of the projects that we're not doing? Like, what happens when you don't do lead pipes? Like, what happens to IQ? And what is that like? How does that stem into like systemic racism? And so just like looking at like those kinds of things about like long-term health effects and how does that intersect with energy? And um, so it's like asking these like really hard questions that feel too hard and too big. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of um, the piece that I feel like is pretty bold for me these days. Love it. This is another fill in the blank, but I stay curious by talking to interesting people, reading and traveling when it's possible. Yeah. I'm hoping to see T sometime soon. Yeah. Aww. Soon, soon. 
uh, along the same line. I'm just always uh, trying to learn. Sometimes I think I know things and then I meet like new brilliant people and I just think, oh, like I, I don't know all of the answers and there's so many angles of water um, that I just can't stop being curious. So it's still fun. I love it. What is something that you're deeply grateful for? I'm so deeply grateful for the leadership of environmental justice advocates who have been building bridges for decades now, and especially like the women, people of color that are leaving this movement. We're so lucky to have them at the helm and just doing everything we can to, to provide support. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just, just the age that we're living in where, where those groups that Katie's talking about. So I'm just really grateful to be moving in this sort of space in, in this moment of time with all the money and all the opportunity and the scariness that is climate change and then the potential that it is to, you know, change that dynamic potentially. It's, it's pretty exciting times. Absolutely. I agree. Um, uh, at the, the brave blue world, uh, documentary, Matt Damon says, how lucky are we mm. to be the ones to get to solve this problem? And yeah, when the first awesome. time I heard that I was like, Ooh, chills. I mean, I think I just got me in too, but I was like, yeah, I mean, daunting problems, but still feel, um, kind of honored to be someone to step up and, and tackle him even with a little bit that I can do, but which is a great segue to the last and final question. Um, because when you talk to people about behavior change, when you're trying to move that needle in the right direction, some people will say, what difference does it make if I make a change? I'm just one mm-hmm. person. That's not going to make a huge impact. We obviously wholeheartedly disagree with that because we believe that change can be positive or change can be contagious. And you never know what you might inspire in somebody else. So what is the biggest call to action, each of you, that you believe could ultimately change the world? I believe we can change the world by fostering a collective will to invest in local public goods and services, right? That that there's a moral imperative to provide baseline levels of reliable, affordable services, and that we can demand this through our votes, we can demand this through our dollars, and we can demand this through the relationships and the work that we're doing, and it's time. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so I think the call of action is roll up your sleeves. Right. Every place has a whole bevy of services. And it's amazing that they're provided and we can provide them better. Let's get to yeah. work. Mm, awesome. Um, I think uh, my call to action kind of goes along those lines, but particularly with the municipalities that I've uh, had the pleasure and the, the water, the public works directors, the water operators, these are incredibly diligent, hardworking um, people. They deeply care about their communities and the effects of um, water on their communities. So I think my um, call to action is to think differently. How do we use indigenous science? How do we change every every way that we have made decisions in the water space for the last 50 years, we can't keep doing the exact same thing and expect different results. And I think um, uh, we have to connect to a different solution to find multiple outcomes. So I think that's my call to action is to put in the work, to pick up the phone and go one degree past just your hometown 
consultant that maybe has only given you the same type of solution over the years, like just go a little bit further and it's and, and it's the time for that call to action. And anyone that's listening to this that's like inspired at all at the municipal level, please call me because I would love to have that conversation. I love that you said thing different. That's been on my heart a lot the past yes. few weeks because there's a, a Steve Jobs quote that ends with that. But in that quote, he also talks about the ones that are cra- the ones that are crazy enough to believe that they can change the world are the ones that usually do. So <laughs> be, be a little crazy, but you heard it here. So raise your hand, roll up your sleeves and think differently. And let's get some shit done. How did you just <laughs> sum up that perfectly? That was amazing. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I appreciate it. So happy to have had this conversation with y'all. So enlightening. And uh, I hope everyone that's listening feels like they have a better sense of context, issue, resources, that there are solutions. There are people who want to help. You're not alone in this. And um, lots of passionate people behind you that got your back. So thank you so much for being here. And, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure we're going to be talking again in the future. So thank thank you for letting, thank you for creating a resource with me that I'm more than excited to share with my like small town friends around here. Like, I feel like now I have a solution for them. (laughs) I'm like, here, listen to this podcast. It's happening. Thank you. Thank you both. Really happy to be part of this. It's really fun. We are so grateful for each and every one of you, all the members of our listening community. The Water in Real Life podcast is a Rogue Water Lab original. It's hosted by the H2 duo, that's us, Stephanie Corso and Ariane Shipley. It's produced by Rogue Water Lab, 12 Midnight, and Matt Black Sound. Sound design and music by Andre Black and Matt McNeil of Matt Black Sound. For more Water in Real Life, check out our YouTube channel and sign up for our lab notes. You can find both at roguewaterlab.org.